Welcome to NACE Clinical Highlights. I'm Dr. Alana Morris, Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Cardiology and Director of Heart Failure Research at the Emory University Clinical Cardiovascular Research Institute at Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia. Joining me today for this podcast titled Risk Assessment and Pulmonary Arterial Hypertension and Right Heart Failure, Individualizing Therapy is Dr. Raymond Benza professor and director of the Division of Cardiovascular Disease, and the Bob and Corinne Frick Endowed Chair of Heart Failure in the Department of Medicine at the Ohio State Wexner Medical Center in Columbus, Ohio. Welcome, Ray. Thanks so much for inviting me to this. I'm really excited to have this uh, active conversation with you. So uh, thanks for that very kind introduction. Absolutely. Shall we get started? Let's do it. Okay. Um, so, Ray, for the definition of pulmonary hypertension, the cutoffs have changed in recent years, yes? Yes, they have, and uh, thanks for asking that really important question. You know, as you know, the, the contemporary definition of pulmonary hypertension was uh, mean pulmonary artery pressure greater than 25 millimeters of mercury, and we've had that definition intact for a long period of time. But over the last five to six years, I think many of us have wondered whether we are underestimating the degree of pulmonary hypertension that's present in our communities by setting that threshold, which we now think is a little too high. So there's been a lot of investigation into this and, um, and in many of the symposiums in the last two or three years when experts have got together and have done some pretty credible literature searches, we now know that when the mean pulmonary artery pressure starts exceeding 20 millimeters of mercury, that there really is at the cost of survival and morbid events. And so given this increase in mortality now being seen at that level, we thought that it was very much uh, needed to lower our threshold to 20 millimeters of mercury. Uh, one, so that we could appreciate that there are more people walking around with pulmonary hypertension than we think. So fostering early identification and two, by identifying people earlier and giving us more lead time, we might make a bigger impact with therapy if we can identify the disease earlier. And that's why the, the new definition of pulmonary hypertension has been changed to a mean pulmonary artery pressure greater than 20 millimeters of mercury. So that would suggest we need a right heart catheterization to ultimately diagnose PAH. Um, but we, of course, need a high index of clinical suspicion to even start down that diagnostic pathway. Are there other um, exams or imaging modalities that are necessary to work up patients suspected of having PAH? Yeah, thank you. I think the first important thing is to really have a strong index of clinical suspicion. And the reason why that's important is because many of the early symptoms of this disease mimic much more common diseases like asthma or, or things like that. Uh, and so shortness of breath is our primary presenting symptom. Most often people will not diagnose pulmonary arterial hypertension unless they have this uh, high clinical index of suspicion. And that's really resulted in uh, a delay in the diagnosis of this very serious disease. In some cases, up to two and a half years after symptoms have, uh, have begun. And a very deadly progressive disease like PEH, this early identification is really, really critical. And so if you have a high clinical index of suspicion, particularly if a person falls in a certain risk group for the disease, they have HIV or they have cirrhosis, 
or they know they have a congenital heart defect, uh, or if they've taken an anorexogen in the past, knowing these risk factors, uh, and very importantly, I forgot to mention connective tissue diseases, is really part of the critical step uh, to identifying the disease. So if a connective tissue patient works into your office complaining of shortness of breath, pulmonary hypertension should be in the background somewhere. And once you get, gather that index of suspicion and you move through your exam and your chest x-ray and your electrocardiogram, the next biggest screening test to identify pulmonary hypertension is the echocardiogram. Because as you know, it can give us very sensitively uh, an, an illustration of what the systolic pulmonary artery pressure is in any individual patient. And that's very important for identifying the disease. Plus the echo gives you a whole lot of other information uh, that you can marry with that pressure, including what the right ventricle looks like. And that gives you even more information about the chronicity of the disease and the impact of that uh, disease on survival. So I think that's all really helpful. And obviously we're trying to get at this diagnosis earlier before patients have evidence of you know, significant RV dysfunction or, or frank right heart failure. So other than looking at the RV, are there other parameters on echo that you really pay key attention to? For example, you know, velocities across the tricuspid valve or things that would make a clinician think, aha. Yeah, that's a, that's a really okay. great question. And I'm, I'm one that likes to get the maximum at, at every tool that I use. And, you know, again, incorrectly using your tools and leading to a delay in diagnosis, like we mentioned earlier, is really critically important to a patient's overall survival. And so gleaning as much information from the echo, you can also get a good idea if they do have pH, what type it might be. You might be able to identify a congenital heart disease or a shunt using echo. As I mentioned, critically evaluating the right ventricle gives you an idea of the chronicity of the disease and the seriousness of the disease. But also people have to do a really concerted look at the left side of the heart. And the reason for that is the most common form of pulmonary hypertension that we see in the clinic is related to left heart disease. Almost 80% of the patients that we see will have that diagnosis. And so looking at the right ventricle, how big it is, how thick it is, if the valves are all working correctly, and very importantly, looking at the left atrial size and estimates of diastology is critically important because with the growing number of heart failure preserved ejection fraction patients that we're now seeing in the community, we've had a major difficulty in many of these patients being misidentified as patients with idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension. And that's critically important because the drugs designed to treat Precapillary pulmonary hypertension, like PAH, can also be very deleterious if you apply them in, uh, with, without much discretion in those with PAH-related left heart disease. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's incredible. And having discussed the workup and the diagnostic criteria, let's now turn our attention to management. Um, it seems that beyond the initial diagnosis that, you know, very critical right heart cath, PA pressure greater than 20 millimeters of mercury, the management is based a lot on risk stratification. Can you tell us more about how to appropriately risk stratify patients? Yeah, that's really critical. So once you identify with suspicion, with an echo and confirm with a right heart catheterization, the next very important part, when you identify someone with pulmonary arterial hypertension, because of its very unpredictable nature and its known rapid progression is really to risk stratify. And what I mean by risk stratification is you want to identify an individual's per 
person's risk of having an adverse event, whether it's a mortality event or a morbidity event after diagnosis. And that's where risk stratification plays a really important role because that will enable you to really use your medicines and the aggressiveness of your management with that patient much more accurately. So you wanna match risk with aggressiveness. The higher the risk, the more aggressive you're gonna be, the more upfront combination of therapeutics you might make, and the less uh, risky patient maybe can get away with oral medication, perhaps even one. So risk stratification is a really, really important step uh, in, in marrying patients to the correct management scheme. And, and for our listeners, the Reveal Risk Scoring Calculator can be found in the resources section of this podcast activity. Um, any specific comments on the Reveal Calculator? Yeah, I, I think, you know, a lot of the contemporary scoring systems uh, like the Reveal Calculator really make use of a, uh, a contemporary multivariable approach because we are all convinced that you can't predict prognosis accurately if you use one two or three things. You really have to look at a constellation of variables that really well define the patient in a sense of totality to really accurately depict their risk. And so the reveal calculator does that by relying on demographic events, clinical study variables, vital signs to give you a really complete picture of that of any individual patient. And and and, and that's why we 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 favor using these type of tools, particularly in a community where people may be a little less experienced in managing a pulmonary hypertension to really give you the right message of when you should feel safe treating a PAH patient or when a PAH patient should really be sent to a center of, of excellence to be treated. And most importantly, if they're high risk, to really get them evaluated for transplant early, because that is really the only curative agent that we have right now for this disease. So it sounds like the risk calculator or risk stratification guides our therapy. And, and fortunately, there are some new therapies that have come out and or on the horizon for our PAH patients. What are these new and emerging agents and what specifically is being targeted by these uh, therapeutic agents? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. You know, we have 14 approved therapies now to treat pulmonary arterial hypertension. And, and, and with that, uh, really augmentation of our armamentarium to treat this disease, we've almost doubled life expectancy. You know, a typical patient with PEH who was not being treated, they could only live two and a half years. And now our average survival is seven years. Now we, we take a lot of celebration in that, but quite frankly, in a disease that affects you know, young to middle-aged women, adding an additional seven years of life is not what that patient wants. They want to live a whole lot longer than that. And, and while we're waiting for some of these new agents to come up, that's where change in management using risk scoring really helps us push that survival curve until some of these newer agents, which uh, we'll talk about here in the next minute or two, uh, have the time to really set, set their place uh, in, in the clinical environment. We have lots of new treatments uh, 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 on the horizon, and they're, they're quite distinct from the drugs that we have now. The drugs that we have now have really focused on trying to maximally vasodilate the arteries uh, in, the, in, the, in the pulmonary circuit. And, and to some bit, try to reverse remodeling to make them closer to a normal artery or arteriole. The newer agents that we're looking at now are really taking advantages of the pathways 
that we know make that make structurally a vessel abnormal. They work on reversing animal proliferation, reversing medial hypertrophy, getting smooth muscle cells to undergo uh, apoptosis. And by doing that remodeling, reduce pressure, reduce the the stress on the right heart and and make people live longer. So we have a lot of inhalational drugs that are coming out uh, using uh, special formulation of tyrosine kinase inhibitors uh, that work directly on the PDGF pathway. We have our first drug that actually activates and accentuates uh, the BMPR2 pathway, which we know is a critical pathway that drives pulmonary hypertension. Uh, so some of these new molecules that activate that pathway that allows the vessel to develop and remodel in a positive way are going to be really, really important. And so the focus so- on remodeling now is critical. Uh, and that's where the big advances in the field are coming out. So it sounds like there's a wide array of therapies for us to choose from even now and more on the horizon. Um, And it sounds like we need to focus our management approach based on, again, sort of low risk, intermediate risk and high risk categories for the patient. For example, someone who's low risk with a reveal calculator, um, which is less than or equal to six, which combination or, or which therapies would you start for that patient? Well, it's interesting, you know, uh, right now, uh, even a low risk patient, we would generally consider using upfront combination medical therapy with a PD-5 inhibitor and uh, endothelin antagonist. But I think some of the recent literature suggested that if a patient is truly at ultra low risk and ultra low risk, meaning that they are at low risk for having a mortality or morbidity event, those patients may be very well managed on upfront monotherapy with either a PD-5 or an endothelin antagonist. And that's again, where the beauty of risk stratification comes in because we don't have to over-treat people and and let them experience the side effects that they typically experience as we augment therapy and use more combinations of drugs. So I think that's uh, that's really critically uh, critically important. What about for the intermediate or high-risk patient? How does your management change? So an intermediate-risk patient classically and still gets upfront dual combination therapy with two oral analogs, uh, usually a PD-5 or an ERA. There's a lot of uh, uh, exchanging that you can do at this level. So you can substitute an inhale therapy for one of these drugs or you know, potentially even uh, uh, cyclic uh, GMP uh, agonists. Uh, like um, uh, Rio Sequat. Um, uh, so uh, there are a lot of choices in that intermediate class. Now, the high-risk class, you have to be very strategic with. So this is usually upfront triple combination therapy with two oral drugs and and a parenteral prostacycline, either intravenous or subcutaneous. My preference is intravenous because that's where we get the biggest bang of the buck and do it as quickly as we can. So it sounds like, again, a lot of options, and I guess maybe one last question, which is what are you focusing on in terms of seeing a good result, a good treatment effect for these patients? Is it a resolution of the pulmonary artery pressures? Is it improvement in RV function? Like what's your end goal, obviously beyond survival? So our goal is to make people low risk. That means less than a 5% chance of dying from this disease in a year. And that's what we aspire to. And, and we do that by, again, using our calculators that we talked about, 
but also marrying additional information to that. So you mean your, your contemporary scoring systems like Reveal is one big tool in your tool belt, but I always marry that with right ventricular imaging, like you mentioned, what's the right ventricle doing? So if I have someone who's low, low risk, but their RV still somewhat dysfunctional, they may push that patient even more to make sure I clearly get them into the low risk. They model their right heart, I've done a good job reversing those uh, risk factors and people are functioning, feeling and living longer by doing that. So I use that combined approach of using my multimodality risk scoring system married with imaging. Well, Ray, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me and share your expertise on pulmonary arterial hypertension and how to individualize therapy for our patients, including those with right heart failure. I think you provided some excellent information to our colleagues today. I really appreciate that. And uh, it's always a pleasure to do these educational podcasts because education where it's all at and the uh, better we educate the community, the better our patients will fare. So thank you so much for inviting me. If you are interested in learning more about PAH, you can go to the NACE website at naceonline.com and register for any of our other enduring activities on PAH or any other program we have developed. Please like us on Facebook at NACE CME to be part of our online social media community and get access to other content and programs we share. I want to thank you, our audience, for joining us for this podcast. I hope you've learned something new you can bring back to your clinical practice. We look forward to having you join us for other upcoming podcasts in the future.